Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 24, we read, From there he, that is Jesus, arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Then she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, for this saying, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone and her daughter lying on the bed. Remember that Mark's gospel's audience are Romans. They're Roman citizens and Roman slaves. In this particular chapter, it is going to address the issue of do the Gentiles defile the Jews in verses 1 through 13? And are the Gentiles somehow less important than the Jews in verses 24 through 37? And in the chapter, Jesus will rebuke the religious leaders in verses 1 through 13 about their traditions. He reassures the disciples concerning the truth in verses 14 through 23. And now Jesus will restore a daughter and in the process will build trust in verses 24 through 30. And in this portion of scripture, we encounter a mother. With a broken heart. And then we encounter a servant. With a compassionate heart. The place. The region of Tyre and Sidon. The problem. A Gentile woman's child. Is possessed with an evil spirit. The plea. A girl's desperate mother. Begs Jesus to heal. Her daughter. And so. The passage begins with a woman. And she's on the outside who needs faith on the inside in order to get her daughter from the dark side in order to deliver her to the light side. That's it in a nutshell. By the way, have you ever been on the outside? Have you ever been the person who's watching from the outside and you're seeing what's going on on the inside. I remember that thought vividly the first time it entered my mind. You know when it was? I was in kindergarten. Do you remember when you first start to school and you go to kindergarten and you have nap time and treat time? And I remember looking over the desk and looking out into the playground and looking at the kids going into the cafeteria going, I can't wait to grow up so I can eat lunch in the cafeteria. And then I entered the first grade and I had lunch in the cafeteria. And it wasn't all it was cracked up to be. 
When I was growing up, by the way, I, the first years, I, I never rode the bus. I walked to school. Not five miles through the snow, but I did walk to school. But I'd see the kids being dropped off in the bus, and I thought, wouldn't it be cool to ride in a big yellow bus? And then I went to high school, and we had to drive 14 miles in this Mojave desert just to get to school. And it wasn't as much fun as I thought it would be. Riding the bus, I thought, I can't wait to get a car. In high school, I couldn't wait to get into college. In college, I couldn't wait to get a job. And now that I have a job, I can't wait to retire. Do you ever feel that way? You're on the outside and you're looking inside. Maybe before you became a Christian, you were on the outside, looking on the inside. Did you ever wonder what it would be like to know God's grace and know God's mercy and experience his love and experience his forgiveness? Did you ever wonder what it would be like to experience this enormous weight of of guilt lifting off the surface of your soul? Did you ever wonder what it was like to not go to bed at night and wonder if you were going to make it, remember the prayer you learned, now, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep, and if I should die. What kind of a person teaches their child, am I going to die in the middle of the night? <laughs> but you know, I didn't have that kind of sense when I was a non-Christian. I didn't think of being on the outside and that they were on the inside. I thought I was on the inside and they were on the outside. And I thought, how could anyone be so stupid? How could someone be so ignorant? I believe that Christians were brainwashed, empty-headed hypocrites who didn't have any clue about reality. I, I thought, like Josh McDowell, that Christians had two brains and one of those brains was lost. And the other brain was looking for the lost brain. This woman is on the outside. For this woman, some have suggested that she was guilty of wishful thinking or magical thinking, that somehow that Jesus was some sort of magician who could somehow deliver her daughter from the grip of Satan's servants. But her faith is going to be tested. The desperate woman will interrupt Jesus as he seeks a much-needed rest, but Jesus will allow both his rest and seclusion to be interrupted in verse 25. The woman will discuss her need with Jesus in verses 26 and 28. She's going to persist in asking for help in verse 28. She's going to confess her humility and her status and her need in verse 28. And then she's going to actually get help in verses 29 through 30. So let's look at the woman on the outside in verse 24. It says, from there he, that is Jesus, arose. He is in the northern part of Galilee in Capernaum. Remember, he has had this run-in with the religious leaders, with the scribes, with the Pharisees, with the hypocrites. They hate him and they want to kill him. And so he goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon. I don't know if you're familiar with Middle Eastern geography, but if you can picture the Galilee in your mind and you go due west and north, there is Tyre. And above it is Sidon. And so where Tyre and Sidon is, immediately to its east are the Lebanese mountains. And by the way, only two times in Jesus' entire life are we told that he went to somewhere other than the Galilee and Judea. 
Remember when he was a little boy, a young man, after his mother had given birth to him, the wicked king Herod sought to destroy his life. And so he made an escape into Egypt, spent we don't know how much time, but after Herod's death returned. And this is the only time, this is the only time in the earthly ministry of Jesus that he'll leave Judea and Galilee and go to another place. He enters a house and wanted no one to know it. He's in Gentile country and he needs rest. But look what else it says. But he could not be hidden. That's an important point for each and every one of you. He could not be hidden. You know, there's a time when Jesus shows up and he just won't stay hidden. Even at Christmas time. Our unbelieving family and friends through the cardboard boxes and the paper mache Jesus and, and, and the manger scenes. There is this sense in which a real God is going to enter into a real human experience. Jesus can't be hidden. Tyre and Sidon, by the way, were natural harbors. They were famous for their sailors. As a matter of fact, it was the Phoenicians who first navigated by the stars. The Phoenicians in Tyre and Sidon would build boats. They would navigate the Mediterranean. They were the very first people to make it through the Straits of Hercules. They went around the loop and down to North Africa and along the coast of Africa, and they had thriving trade. They established a thriving, thriving straight, a thriving trade with Britain. They would go to the tin mines. They would get exotic goods and services. They would bring them back to Tyre and Sidon. And by the way, the people in Tyre and Sidon were direct descendants of the Canaanites. You'll remember earlier in verse 19. We'll, we'll go back just for a moment where it says, because it does not, he was talking about food, because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. Jesus has made the declaration that it isn't what goes into your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of your heart that defiles you. He's talked that way about food, but now he's going to bring that up about people. Jesus is in Gentile territory. And again, he needs rest. He anonymously checks into some friend's house. He can't be hidden. The news spreads quickly. Jesus is here. Jesus is here. And look at verse 25. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him. And she came and fell at his feet. The woman assumes the position. Both of reverence and grief. She's in pain. Her daughter is in the dark. The woman is an outsider. Look what the text says. She was a Greek and a Syrophoenician by birth. Syrophoenicia was in contrast to another part of Phoenicia in North Africa. She is genetically by birth. Syrophoenician. I am genetically by birth. My father was born in Sicily. My grandparents were born in Sicily. They come to this country. And even though we are Italian by culture and by nature and by birth, I grew up in the United States of America. I'm an American. 
I do the things that Americans do. I speak the language that the Americans speak. I embrace the culture of Americans. And so when it says that she's a Greek, it doesn't mean she's a Greek genetically, but she's a Greek culturally. She has a Greek worldview. She speaks a Greek language. She understands about Greek customs. She's a Gentile, not a Jew. And remember, Jesus has told the religious leaders and his own disciples that food is clean. And now he's going to demonstrate that people are clean. But some Jews, many Jews, considered Gentiles to be like barbarians. Some of them even considered them that they were like animals. There was a profound isolation and prejudice, and some of them would even treat them as as subhuman. Prejudice is pretty common. By the way, a Greek Orthodox, excuse me, a good observant Jew, an Orthodox Jew, wouldn't even walk on Gentile soil unless it was necessary. Gentiles got most of their impressions or many of their impressions about how God felt about them from their Jewish neighbors. Imagine you are a non-believer. You're not a Christian by any stretch of the imagination. And so your whole vision, your whole perception of what a Christian is like is what you see around you. And so you watch TV and you go, oh, that's what Christians are like. You listen to the radio. Oh, that's what Christians are like. You go out into the malls. Oh, that's what it's allegedly a Christian is like. And if you're like me, you had not a high opinion or a high regard of Christians. And the Gentiles didn't necessarily have a high regard for the Jew either. Because the observant Jew would make the Gentile feel unclean, dirty. Can you imagine living in a world where someone was even reluctant to touch you for fear that they would be contaminated? And so, not only is she a Gentile, but she's a woman. It's a double whammy in the minds of the disciples. By the way, women in the ancient world, particularly almost in every culture, experienced trial and prejudice and isolation and obstacles. The woman, like this Syrophoenician woman living in the culture in which she lives in, were often abused, often mistreated, often neglected, and there's no sign of her husband anywhere. And men often didn't view women as fully human in the sense of being eligible to the rights, privileges of, of men. Aristotle wrote that a woman was to a man what a slave was to a master. Aristotle wrote that a woman is really an unfinished man, diminished. Standing one step lower on the scale of development, Aristotle believed that women were by nature inferior and men superior. And so Aristotle didn't believe that women should be allowed to speak, should have no uh, contributions to significant ideas. He wrote that the glory of a woman was to keep her mouth shut. And for many people, they understand about that isolation and they understand about that mistreatment and they understand about that abuse and neglect. Many Jewish men adopted the same ideas. As a matter of fact, it wasn't uncommon for a Jewish man to wake up in the morning and pray, thank God I'm a Jew and not a Gentile. Thank God I'm a man and not a woman. Thank God I'm free and not a slave. 
So they would begin their world with outsiders and insiders. She was an outsider because she's a Gentile and she is an outsider because she's a woman. But there's something else even more important than either one of those two things in the disciples' mind. She's an outsider because of her sin. To a Jew, a person who was demon-controlled or a person who was demon-possessed or a person who had a family member who was possessed by demons or controlled by demons was obviously in deep sin and gross immorality. The demon-possessed person obviously sunk to the lowest rung on whatever human ladder existed. In Mark's, in Matthew's gospel, we hear she's crying over and over and over again. Peter is begging her to keep her mouth shut. Andrew, James, John are asking her to be quiet. Get rid of her. Look at the text. And she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. The implication being she asked and there's silence. She asked and there's silence. She asked and there's silence. She kept asking and there's more and more silence. But her daughter is in a dark place, in a wicked place, and in a self-destructive place. Demons in the Bible are said to oppose God and God's plans in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. They're said to execute Satan's program in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Demons disseminate false doctrine in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Some demons cause insanity. Some cause muteness. Some cause lack of speech, disease, deafness, epilepsy, blindness, suicidal mania, personal injury. The Bible says that demons in the last days at the time what's called the Great Tribulation will once again visit humanity and they will grievously torture the unsaved. And there's this dark, wicked, emptiness. And the text tells us the repetition is met over and over again with silence. Some have suggested that the silence of Jesus is evidence of prejudice or indifference. Some have said that the opposite of love isn't hate, but silence or indifference. But the silence of Jesus, you need to understand, is not indifference and it's not prejudice. By the way, each and every one of you reading this story will eventually put yourself in the story. Some of you at this very moment are asking, why would Jesus do this? Why is Jesus doing what he's doing? But let me tell you something, in case you didn't know. Even the silence of Jesus' love, deep in this woman's heart, repentance is growing and faith is growing and desperation is growing. And Jesus is going to draw out that faith in the most remarkable way. By the way, faith in the Bible has often been compared to many things. Faith is the hand that receives the gift of God and makes us rich in John 1.12. Faith is the eye that looks to the invisible, the unseen. In Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1, it is the evidence of things hoped for. 
The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the heart's response to the call of the Lord in Romans 10.10. Faith is the link that connects Jesus and God. Faith is the wire which the electricity of God's power runs and communicates to us. Faith is the operator which causes the feet to run with gladness and joy towards obedience to Jesus. You sing the song, to trust and obey. There's no better way to be happy in Jesus. We might say that trusting is obeying, and the woman persists. This is a part of of courage. This is the courage of faith. It's the choice of faith. It's the calmness of faith. It's the confidence of faith. It's the conflict of faith. The Bible says that the battle is the Lord's, but it's the confession of faith. Read it for yourself. Look at the text again. She kept asking him. She's on the outside. But she so desperately needs to be on the inside. Look at verse 27. It says, but Jesus said to her, let the children be filled first. For it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. The passage begins with a reminder in verse 27. Let the children be filled first. And continues with the woman's response in verses 28 through 30. What are you thinking right now? What are you thinking about this statement? Are you tempted, are you tempted to believe that Jesus is guilty of prejudice? I need you to point something out to you. Jesus is not wicked under any circumstance. We are. The Bible says that our hearts are dark and wicked and fallen. And I need you to understand something before you accuse Jesus of being wicked and prejudiced. Make sure you examine your heart because you're going to need to. You need to understand the passage and I'm going to help you understand it. Perhaps one of the important things in this passage is look at the word first. Let the children be filled first. Jesus isn't excluding the Gentiles. He's in effect saying what he has always said. The instrument of salvation will be the Jews. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus spells it out precisely. In Matthew 15, 24, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's not a question of prejudice. It's a question of priority. W.C. Fields used to say, ah, yes. I am free of all prejudices. I hate all people equally. <laughs> Education will broaden a narrow mind, but it, it's no cure for a fat head. William James, the philosopher, wrote, quote, A great many people think that they're thinking when they are merely rearranging their prejudices. Some scholars and even Bible teachers have actually accused Jesus of prejudice at times. That he was somehow guilty. 
And that he embraced the limitations and wickednesses and prejudices of his generation. But there is a better explanation of the passage. The answer that Jesus gives isn't a refusal, but it's actually a test of repentance and faith. You need to understand the woman is not a Jew. She has no claims on Jesus. She has no claim to his benefits. Paul spoke of the Gentiles as being aliens from the commonwealth, strangers of the covenant, without Christ, without hope, without God in the world. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And you might have even thought that you deserved to be saved and you deserved a message of hope and you deserved forgiveness and you deserved redemption. In God's plan, Jesus would come to the Jew first. Charles P. Curtis in his novel wrote a commonplace book, quote, There are only two ways to be unprejudiced and impartial. One is to be completely ignorant. The other is to be completely indifferent. Bias and prejudice are attitudes to be kept in hand, not attitudes to be avoided. But guess what? Jesus doesn't have bias and Jesus doesn't have the wrong point of view. Let me just put it to you bluntly. Jesus only has points to view. He sees everything clearly. He sees everything specifically. He sees everything in the most important way that it could be seen. Don't allow your prejudices to imply that Jesus has prejudice. And you might think, I don't have any prejudices. Really? I'm going to challenge you to examine your heart just for a moment. Because who on, in your life is on the outside? Who do you draw in the circle and who do you let into the circle and who is outside the circle socially, politically, philosophically, theologically, intellectually? How do you view the outsider? We sometimes mistake our prejudices for convictions. Samuel Johnson wrote, quote, prejudice not being founded on reason cannot be removed by argument. And the woman, the woman will use the words of Jesus. What seem like a rebuke, she will use the words of Jesus to build her own faith. Look what it says in verse 28. And she answered and said to him, yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. A lot of Bible scholars and commentators have made a big deal out of the fact that Jews saw dogs as unclean and they would never keep dogs as pets. Gentiles kept dogs as pets. And again, if you're thinking, I can't love, I can't love a savior who hates puppies. I can't. I can't embrace a savior who's filled with prejudice and and hates dogs. But you need to understand something. Just like you, the woman sees herself in the story. 
Jesus is telling a story and she places herself in the middle of the story. She is the puppy. She's the little dog begging crumbs at the children's table. You need to understand something. She knows she's not an invited guest. She addresses Jesus as Lord. And that may not seem like a big deal to you because you're used to being seeing Jesus as Lord. You hear it. You say it. You know that Jesus is Lord. But here is the only time in Mark's gospel that Jesus is called Lord right here in chapter 7 verse 28 not in chapter 1 not in chapter 2 the religious leaders don't call him Lord the scribes don't call him Lord we don't even have his disciples calling him Lord until Peter calls him Lord at Caesarea Philippi but she calls Jesus Lord She doesn't ask Jesus to give up or interrupt what he's doing. She doesn't say, stop feeding the children and start feeding me. She doesn't resent the fact that the children should receive the bread. Do you know what she does? She allows even what seems like the rebuke to be one more opportunity. For her to plea, for her daughter, for her daughter's soul, for her daughter's life. By the way, it's never too late to give up prejudice. Her answer incorporates humility. She recognizes her position and she recognizes his position. No one has ever built a statue to someone who said, hey, let's just let things go. She's persistent. The silence, she continues. The rebuke, she continues. And look what it says in verse 29. Then he said to her, for this saying, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. David McKenna writes, quote, what else could he, that is Jesus, do except chuckle at her uninhibited comeback, marvel at her prophetic insight, send her home with the promise that healing had already come to her daughter? My guess is that this woman also ministered to Jesus. After laboring with hard-hearted Pharisees and dull-minded disciples, the interlude with an open spirit and a lively mind must have been as good as a good night's rest. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 15, it includes, Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, Great is your faith. Let it be done to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Jesus refers to this woman's faith as great faith. There's only two times in all of the New Testament where Jesus is overwhelmed, blown away, overcome. And it's not the faith of Jewish religious leaders, and it's not the faith of his own disciples. It's the faith faith of a Roman centurion who comes to Jesus, and he says, my my servant is sick. Um, Could you please heal him? And he goes, hey, let's go heal him. And he says, I'm not worthy for you to even come into my house. I'm a man under authority and in authority. I know who you are. Just simply say the word, and my servant will be healed. 
She's met with silence. She's met with rebuke. But inside, the woman who was on the outside is growing and expanding. Few people, even Christians, understand the enormous value and power of faith. Faith, according to the Bible, like I said, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of of things not seen. Faith isn't confused with wishful thinking. This isn't presumption. This isn't determination. It isn't just simply optimism. It isn't imagination. Faith is believing and it's believing in what Jesus said. Faith is not simply the absence of fear or the absence of doubt. It's the possibility that what Jesus says and can say will be done. You can look at her persistence, but her persistence is not her faith. By persistence, she refuses to remain on the outside. But by faith, guess what? Jesus is going to respond. And her daughter is healed. When Jesus worked great signs and miracles in the Galilee, people regarded him as a divine man, a miracle worker. The crowds instantly sought him out. But yet, I want you to note something. The power of God is properly released, not in the context of imagination, not in the context of magic, not in the context of superstition or magical thinking. It's in response to faith. And that's exactly what this woman has. The woman on the outside has faith on the inside. And it is that faith that allows Jesus to stand in the gap. Jesus came first to the children of Israel. But Jesus also said that many would come and sit at the table of Abraham in the kingdom. He would come to Israel first. But remember the words of Paul. The Jews would reject the promise. Their rejection would be riches to the Gentiles. In Romans eleven twelve, it says, Now if their fall is riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? And Jesus says, Let it be to you as you desire. What is it that she wants? I want the emptiness inside of my daughter. I want the darkness and the wickedness. I want the self-destructive behavior to go away. I want the torment of the wicked spirit released. Faith is the assurance that the thing that God has said in his word is going to come to pass and that God will act in a way that is consistent with his character and consistent with his word. Look what it says. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone. You might be thinking that faith ends in verse 29, but it's not true. By faith, by faith, by faith, the woman refuses to be left outside. By faith, she refuses to give up. But look at verse 30. By faith, she went home. By faith, she went home. (laughs) Someone said, if you're ever tempted to give up, just think about Brahms, who it took seven long years for him to compose his famous lullaby. He kept falling asleep at the piano. (laughs) I'm just kidding. That's not true. That part is not true. But the rest of the stuff is true. She comes by faith. And she goes by faith. When she arrived home, look what she found. Her daughter 
lying in a bed, completely released from the demon. Look what the text says. She found the demon gone out. The word is departed. In the Greek language, perfect, active, participle, expressing a state of completion. The demon is gone. The demon is gone. The demon is really, truly gone. <laughs> the woman had persistent faith. She had confident faith. She had persistent faith. She wouldn't give up. She had confident faith. She knew that Jesus could help. And in Matthew's gospel, she worships him. Faith sees the invisible. It believes the incredible. It receives the impossible. True faith is confident obedience to God's word in spite of the circumstances, in spite of the consequences. This faith operates quite simply. By believing that what Jesus says is true. Faith isn't a feeling that we manufacture. It's a total response to what God has revealed in his word. And the Bible says that he spoke in different ways at different times, but he has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. I'll ask you again. Do you ever feel like an outsider? Have you ever walked into church or even walked into your own home or walked into your own circumstances and you cry out to Jesus and you feel like your cries are falling on deaf ears? You feel that if you're hearing anything at all, it sounds like a rebuke. But have you ever stopped to consider that his silence is the opportunity for your repentance to grow and for your faith to grow and for your confidence to grow. Peter says, send her away. And she stays. Andrew says, make her stop crying. And she stays. Jesus is silent and she stays. Peter scowls and she stays like a postage stamp. Stuck to an envelope at Christmas time, addressed to Jesus. The postman takes a great big stamp and marks it undeliverable, but the stamp holds on. She remembers her daughter, and she remembers who Jesus is, and she continues to plead. She's told it's a question of priority, and she puts herself in the story. She says it's the only right that children should eat first, but even puppies gather under the children's table. Even the smallest, the smallest crumb from the bread of life will result in redemption, forgiveness, deliverance. How much do you have to have? It only takes one small morsel to fill your heart and your life. A persistent faith, a humble faith goes a long way. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, by perseverance, the snail made it inside the ark. One slimy step at a time. Are you still on the outside? 
Maybe even outside the family of God. Maybe you thought that you weren't good enough. Maybe you thought that you weren't holy enough. Maybe you thought that the demons have been with you for such a long time that you can't even imagine what life would be like without them. I can't be a Christian. Stop looking for reasons to stay outside. Come inside. The famous storyteller Robert Louis Stevenson wrote, quote, Keep your fears to yourself. Share your courage with others. I'm going to change that slightly. Keep your fear if you like, but you don't have to. Because perfect love casts out fear. There's grace for you. Mercy for you. Forgiveness for you. Redemption and reconciliation for you. Her persistence was evidence of her faith. Don't ever embrace the false notion that Jesus just helped her out because he bugged her. Or that he somehow collapsed under the pressure of his own prejudice and decided to let the poor woman have her way. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Lord wanted his disciples to see what might happen when when a woman exercises real faith and humble faith and persistent faith and a faith that refuses to be left outside. You see, faith expects from God what normal people shouldn't expect. And if you want your faith to grow, you have to consent to its testings. A desperate mom and a compassionate Savior. Is that what you face this morning? Fear? Rejection? Silence? Rebuke? But will you go past the fear? Will you believe right past the rejection? Will you believe past the silence? Will you believe past the rebuke? Will you allow faith to well up inside of you? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. So many people on the outside wanting to believe on the inside. In bondage to the dark side. Unwilling to cross over to the light side. Lord, I pray for each and every person, Lord. I pray that you would cause faith and repentance to well up inside of their heart. And to be reminded that what Jesus says is true. Heavenly Father, I know that for many, many people, they are going to be inundated with religion rather than relationship. With ceremony rather than a real, true experience with Jesus. With fear instead of faith. But Lord, I pray that you would cause your love and your mercy and your grace to be manifested in each and every heart. 
that they would turn from sin and that they would turn to you, that they would love you and worship you and believe you that what you say is true when you say, come to me, come to me, come to me, everyone who is under labor and heavy laden. Is that you? Do you need to have a right relationship with God and don't? Pray. Cry out to him. Say, Lord, I understand that you're willing to forgive me and cleanse me. And allow mercy to be a part of my life. And grace to be a part of my life. And redemption to be a part of my life. And the promise of heaven to be a part of my life. Cry out to him. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's.